Hello, everybody. Welcome to the One Who Plants podcast. I'm uh, I'm very excited uh, for today, uh, as this is the first. This is something new. The first in my uh, uh, two-part series, like I, an actual series here. Uh, well, two episode, a two-episode series. I'm going to be doing here on a uh, well on two guys named Jan, Jan Hus, who I'm going to talk about today, and then Jan Ziska who I'll uh, talk about in a future episode here that I'll hopefully be uploading soon. But uh, really, it's it's the Hussites uh, and this kind of movement that happened, this pre-Reformation Reformation movement that happened in the, the 1400s uh, in the Czech Republic. Uh, and it's a really fascinating topic. I actually was just going to get into uh, Jan Hus. It was my original thought and do an episode on him. But then uh, I, I realized how you got to like, finish the story. Because it's a it's a really intriguing story as a whole, and so uh, after he passes, it's there's a whole another chapter that needs to go. So we get a series today. So we're gonna start though with, uh, today with Jan Hus, uh, who maybe you've heard of if you're if you're familiar with much church history. He was a pretty big uh, figure. Like I said, he was a pre-Reformation reformer uh, and a pretty important one. So he was he was born in 1372 or somewhere around there. Again, we don't always get their exact date uh, with some of these people. Uh, he was born in Bohemia, though, which is in southern, what modern day we would call the Czech Republic, uh, but in, in the Czech area there in, in, in Bohemia, uh, in a town called Husenik, uh, which is probably where he gets his name from. Uh, his father was a, a peasant farmer, you know, not, not much uh, going on there. Uh it was a pretty difficult upbringing, you know, they'd never had much, I mean, being, being a peasant, a farmer, uh, in the, the late 1300s, early 1400s, it's not a real great life, uh, there wasn't really any opportunity for, for much, uh, besides just working really hard and barely surviving, and that was kind of, uh, the, the life, uh, young Hoos was raised in, but it was a, a Christian home, uh, his mother read him the Bible regularly, uh, the Bohemian Bible, which was kind of a well, a very unique thing in, in that day and age. They had uh, somebody, actually multiple people over many years, had translated uh, the Bible uh, from Latin, which is what most of the world read it in at this point, uh, into Bohemian, you know, the language of the people. It's not something we see happening in, in other places. This is a, a very unique thing that's going on in Bohemia at this time. Uh, and so he's able to, to hear the Bible read to him in his own language, and he's able to study it in his own language uh, throughout his life, which will become important. Uh, at an early age, his mother, who was deeply religious, believed that the best opportunity for, for young Hus was uh, to kind of escape the peasant life, was to go off and join the priesthood. So at age 10, he's sent to a monastery to receive an education. Uh, there he learns Latin. Uh, he you know, studies all the important topics of the day. He excels as a student. He's recommended for higher education in Prague, uh, where he goes off to attend university. And there he receives both his bachelor and master's degree. And so he you know, he's escapes the life of being a peasant farmer uh, and goes off and becomes a professor at the university of Prague, uh, which is a very interesting place at this point in history. It's kind of a contentious place. You know, you have the local Bohemians, the Czechs, 
who are there, uh, many of whom are, you know, professors and scholars, but you also have a, a good population of, of German scholars who are there both to learn and to, and to teach. Uh, and there's some very different differing opinions on, on things amongst the German and the Czech uh, professors and students. You know, the Germans were, were very loyal servants of the Pope at this point. You know, they are hardcore uh, Catholics. They, you know, they go along, uh, they just fall in line with what the church tells them and what the Pope says, and they you know, don't question anything. Uh, the Czechs, on the other hand, they like to question, right? There's already murmurings of reform happening there. Um, and part of this is, is due to an in, kind of an intense Czech nationalism. Uh, they're very proud of, of who they are as a people. They don't like outside interference, and the Pope was definitely an outside interferer. Um, you know, we, we see that already, like I said, with the fact that they have their own a, a, the Bible in their own language. They have a Bohemian Bible. Again, this is very unique and, and kind of odd in, in the church at this point. Um, but we also see it uh, just because, you know, Rome is kind of far away, and they've, for the most part, always been kind of left alone. Uh, and so they're, they're used to being a little bit independent, and they like that independence from the church. They, they aren't, they've never really been tied that closely um, to the Pope and to Rome and to all of the church structure. Um, so there's a little hesitance to kind of get too enraptured in that. And at the at this same time in history, the church itself, and, and the papacy especially, is very much a mess. I mean, it's very easy to look at the church and see that it, you know, it's got a lot of problems going on, and so you might not want to, to be too closely aligned with it. Um, this is a very, very volatile time uh, in the history of, of the papacy in, in particular. You know, there's been a lot of uh, tug and pull going on for years uh, about for power uh, between the popes and and kings, uh, and and we see this happening throughout history over and over. And, it, and kings are slowly gaining more and more power against the popes, as the pope always had you know the threat of excommunication before. Well, kings aren't so worried about that anymore, and, and now uh, kings have a lot of money, uh, and the church needs money. Uh, and so what we have happening um, not long you know before Hus is there. Uh, as a as a professor and doing his thing is is the French king, uh, who has through mainly financial means and through his, the power that he has been able to to kind of manipulate church events uh, and get a pope that he wants in office, right? He, he can threaten to withhold gold unless he gets what he wants, right? And so um, what happened was the French king uh, he gets his guy in as pope. The pope his pope decides, well, I'm not going to rule from Rome, I'm going to rule from France. So the papal seat moves to Avignon, France, which was, for a lot of people, kind of devastating in the church. I mean, Rome was always the center of the church. Well, it's not now. France is. Uh, and, and that remains to be true for about 70 years, where Avignon, France, is where the pope rules from. That's where he lives. That's where he does his work. Uh, then in 1378, it's time to elect a, a new pope. And now those who are sick of having the Pope in France, you know, the loyal Romans, uh, they have enough votes to get their guy in. And so they move the papacy back home, back to Rome. But, you know, the French and the king and, and really the French cardinals, they still have enough power and influence that they're like, well, we refuse to acknowledge that. That guy's not the real Pope. Uh, and they install their own Pope in Avignon. So what happens is we get 
two popes. Right? Two popes. They both claim that they're the legitimate pope. They both have cardinals. They both have church leaders. They both have followers who claim they're the legit pope. They both have kings who claim, you know, the kind of Europe at the time they have to choose, pick and choose. You know, some nations, some kings choose to follow the pope in Rome, some the pope in Avignon. So it's, I mean, yeah, you, you just get to pick which pope you prefer because there's two of them and it's a total mess. Right? And this goes on on for years until finally a church leaders decide hey we can't like and and kings and just everybody kind of decides look we this isn't doesn't work we can't have two popes uh, so they get together they elect a new pope that's what they decide is best all right so we can't agree on which of these two is the true pope we'll, we'll just elect a new one and we'll depose the two who are currently there so that's what they do they elect an, a new pope um and him august the 5th and the other two popes are cast aside, except they're like, well, you know, we like being pope. <laughs> we don't, we don't want to give up being pope. Uh, and so they refuse to to leave. And so instead of this cleaning up the mess and us getting one pope, we get three, <laughs> three people all claiming the title of pope, uh, all ruling as pope, all declaring that the other two popes are are not true popes, uh, and all with their own group of followers. Right? It's 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 a mess, right? It's a huge mess. And all of it embroiled in all of this is, you know, tons of corruption, it's greed, it's arrogance. Um, the practice of simony is, is widespread throughout Catholicism at this time. Simony is really just the practice of, of buying and selling church offices. You know, you're a rich parents, you want your kid to be bishop someday? Well, you just give the church enough money and they'll make him bishop. Doesn't matter if he, you know... <laughs> has studied Christian doctrine, or if he even cares about Christianity, if he even cares about the church, just he wants the status of being a bishop. Well, that's been happening. And so you've got people in leadership positions who don't care about the church at all, who just are there for greed, uh, because being bishop could be quite profitable at this time. Church has owns a lot of land, a lot of land. They collect a lot of taxes. Uh, there's a lot of money in the church. And so you know, we have that going on. We have the three popes. We have r corruption just all over the place. Um, and so throughout all of this, we see, you know, through through this whole span of history, I mean, really, we're talking hundreds of years here. We see lots of little splinter groups kind of, uh, well, saying, look, we're done with this. We're going to we're going to go be our own church or we're going to start our own thing. Uh, the response to this usually by by the Pope and by Catholicism as a whole is saying, no, you can't do that. And they'll, they launch crusades against them. They wipe them out. We have, you know, I mean, they would wipe out whole groups of people who they would label heretics for trying to, to just get away from this mess that the church has become. Right? And so it, it's not unusual for people to look at this, especially at this point with the three popes, with the rampant corruption, with the greed out of control, right? The people in, in Bohemia and in Prague, they look at this and they're like, yeah, we, re we really don't want to get involved in this. This is a mess. This isn't what the church should be, right? And so, like I said, there's this, there's this reform movement starting to build. Right? Now, now, into this in Bohemia comes uh, these writings because it's not just happening in Bohemia and in Prague, right? Over in England, the same feeling of, of needing to reform the church and to, to fix this is, is happening as well, led by a guy, a guy named John Wycliffe. 
Now, Wycliffe, he deserves his own podcast and probably will get one someday. But he's, he's out there in England saying, you know, the church is corrupt. It's lost the true faith. You know, it's just full of greed. And he's criticizing the practice of indulgences, which, again, is a great money-making scheme for the church and the corruption of the pope. And, and really what he's saying is scripture is our only guide, right? And this becomes kind of the key point for all the reformers. Scripture is our guide. We're not going to rely on the word of the pope and of church councils because they're human and they err, and they err a lot. Right? It's full of corruption. Uh, we need to return to the Christian teachings as laid out in Scripture. Right? That's what Wycliffe is saying. Um, and Huss, there at the University of Prague, he gets copies of what Wycliffe is writing, uh, as all the Bohemians there uh, do. Right? And the Czechs in Prague, they're reading this stuff, and they're agreeing with it because it's kind of what they've been thinking in the first place. Right? And so at this point... Now, Huss is, is really starting to ramp up uh, his kind of vocal opposition to what's happening in the church. And he has at this now become a very popular preacher. Right? He, he preaches at a, what's called the Bethlehem Chapel. It's there in Prague. It's a very unique church. Like, again, what's going on everywhere uh, in, in Bohemia at this time. Um, they, they're not worshiping in Latin, but in, in their own language. Again, just like they can read their own Bible, well, they're worshiping in their own language, which was, again, not done, just not done anywhere else. And he would draw huge crowds. This church held 3,000 people, and often on a Sunday morning, there was standing room only with overflow out the door. And he would be up there, and he'd be, he'd be preaching Wycliffe's points. You know, he'd be calling out the corruption of the church. He'd be calling for a return to true Christianity. He'd be uh, adamant that Scripture is our only guide. Right? And people loved it. Right? They too saw the corruption and felt it firsthand. You know, and even from the nobility all the way down to the peasants, they were sick of being heavily taxed by the church, of having, you know, priests and bishops becoming rich off of them. Um, which really is a, a general theme in just all of Europe. Just the poor are sick of being poor, uh, whether it's the church pushing them down or the nobility or lords or kings or whoever it is. There's a lot of unrest amongst that populace. Um, and especially it's easy to gear it towards the church at this point. So as Wycliffe is calling out these corruptions and saying it's wrong, uh, people who are struggling to get by are all on board for this, right? He's drawn, again, huge crowds. Not everybody's on board, though, obviously. Those Germans are still there. Um, and, and they still are very loyal to the Pope, and they're kind of appalled by what they're hearing uh, from, from hosts and from these other uh, uh, Czech scholars. And so in 1403, one of them, a guy named Johann Hubner, he makes a list of 45 articles kind of based off Wycliffe's teachings, and he labels them as heresy. And all the German guys agree, and he says, these are condemned by the church. Uh, and Hus looks at these and says, you know what? I, I'm kind of in favor of all the stuff that you just said is a heresy. Um, and so, he, I mean, he's coming out really, really dramatically as pretty much a heretic, at least if, if these are going to be heresies according to, uh, to Hubner and these German scholars and really the Catholic Church. Um, but at this point in history, he, there's not really any repercussions for him saying that he agrees with this. Right, um, right now in Prague, the Archbishop of Prague is this guy named Zibnik Zajic. I probably pronounced that all wrong. Uh, and he's kind of remaining neutral on everything. He's, you know, he's kind of stuck in between. Um, 
and he's always liked Huss, and he's gotten along with him, and he's known him on a personal level. I mean, they'd known each other back when they were both in school and all that. Um, but eventually, the German side kind of wins him over. right? They, they put pressure on Zajic to, that he has to take a stand. Uh, and so although Huss initially doesn't see any repercussions for you know not going along and, or taking back his teachings or going along with, you know, this German idea that these are all heresies. Uh, eventually, Zajic does come over to that side, and, and pretty soon he charges two close friends of Hus with heresy, but not Hus himself, right? Uh, and that could be because Hus still has friends besides Zajic in high places, right? Like the king at the good time, a guy named Wenceslas, um, who liked Hus, especially his wife, uh, Queen Sophia. She was a regular attender at Hus's surfaces. She was there just about every Sunday. Right? And so, and when it's a sloss, he's, he's taken a position of neutrality in this whole Pope fight, right? He just hasn't gotten involved in church stuff. Um, and he's, he's wanted his church leaders to do the same, which again is why Zajic has kind of been neutral on things, right? He's not going to pick a Pope, and the Czech church isn't going to pick a Pope to follow, and they just don't want to get embroiled in it. Um, and so, because Wenceslas likes Hus, uh, Zajic, you know, can't come down on him too hard, so he's kind of safe. Um, but he starts accusing, again, his friends of heresy, and, and some of them end up getting killed as heretics. Uh, things change, though, for Hus uh, in 1409, um, and that's when that third pope uh, is elected. Um, Alexander V. I think I, said, I think I said August V earlier. Alexander V. I don't know why I got that name wrong. Um, right. Alexander V, though, he, he realizes he needs the, as much help as he can get now that there's two other guys all claiming to be Pope. Um, and so he's kind of in a weak position. Uh, and so Zajek, who is... Is by this point is no longer friendly with Hus with Hus at all. He really is upset with him. Uh, again, he's he's trying to get rid of this heresy that he truly believes is heresy in his midst. So he bribes this this third pope, this new pope, uh, to step in and and really just ban Hus from preaching. Uh, doesn't quite label him a heretic yet, but says, "Hey, you got to stop doing what you're doing. You can't be saying that stuff." And so. You know, no services now can be held at, at Bethlehem Chapel. And Hus can't be officiating any services anywhere. Uh, but Hus refuses to listen, right? Even though this has come down directly from the Pope himself. Hus doesn't care, and he keeps on doing what he's doing. Again, with the backing of the king, he's kind of safe. Uh, and now Archbishop Zajic is just really, really upset with him and, uh, and starts ramping up again, uh, kind of... His anger towards other people around Hus, but he can't touch Hus himself. Uh, but again, that changes. Right? So Alexander dies, and now we have a new pope, John Twenty-third. Um, this new pope decides he needs to start a crusade, and partly to get rid of the old popes and their loyal supporters. Um, and so they go on a crusade amongst against other Christians in Christendom. But he needs money for that, so he starts selling uh, indulgences. And as indulgences start being sold there in Prague, uh, Hus becomes a very vocal critic of it, uh, which was the right thing to do. I mean, indulgences have never been a great practice, but it gives the archbishop new ammunition. Right? And now he has new papal authority behind him. Um, and 
And the biggest thing is Wenceslas no longer wants to protect Hus. Right? Because Wenceslas got a portion of the proceeds from the indulgences. So he's getting money from the sale of indulgences, and he doesn't want them to stop. And now Hus is out there vocally criticizing indulgences and trying to end them, and Wenceslas is like, well, I'm, I don't want that. That's some good money. And so now, without Wenceslas' protection, with this new pope, uh, who seems to have more power than the old one, uh, again, the archbishop goes to the pope and lays it out for him, says what the problem is, and the pope agrees to step in and help, and he actually has Hus excommunicated. Right? And so, now, in, in Prague, things become very dangerous for Hus. Um, he has followers who have been killed for heresy. Um, there's actually this kind of just really powerful moment where, where Hus performs a funeral for them in Bethlehem Chapel after uh, three of them are killed, uh, lifting them up as martyrs of the true faith. And so here he has been banished from preaching, he's excommunicated, and he's leading a service in the chapel in the heart of Prague, calling people who've just been killed for, as heretics martyrs of true Christianity. Uh, it's a very powerful moment he refers to the three the three of them as valuable treasures who had given their lives in the cause of truth and refuted the church's claims of heresy right it's things are are really ramping up and uh, as such things are really not safe for Hus there in Prague and and he knows this and so he gets out of there and he goes to southern bohemia uh, back towards where he's from. He's got a lot of friends down there, powerful friends, uh, friends who have castles, which means they have money, which means they can protect him. And he starts staying at, in those castles and, and going under the protection of kind of his wealthy, noble friends. Um, and really, he, he has a lot of popularity. He's going to be a hard figure uh, to get rid of. He's won over huge swaths of both the Czech general populace and the nobility from the poorest to the wealthiest, uh, who says words have connected. Um, and he's definitely not ready to go away. He still has a lot of influence. And so even though he's not in Prague and actively preaching anymore, uh, he begins writing. And he writes very, very critical works of the church and of the pope and of what Christianity has become. The most famous of which is called De Ecclesia, uh, or the church. Right? And it's a really powerful, great read if you ever want to go check it out. But, I mean, in these in these writings now, we start to find things like, I'm going to read you a couple excerpts here. Um, Blessed also be God Almighty, who ordains that his militant church shall have such life that when a pope is dead, she is not on that account without a head or dead, because not upon the pope, but upon the head, Christ does her life dep depend. We don't need a pope, in other words. Right? The only law that a Christian should listen to and read is the law of God's commandments. And it is not right to comply with, implement, or observe any other law, including a law passed down from the pope. Right? As for the Antichrist occupying the papal chair, it is evident that a pope living contrary to Christ, like any other perverted person, is called by common consent Antichrist. Those are strong, strong words. Right? And that's that's the kind of stuff he's writing now. I mean, there's no going back from that. Once you start calling the Pope the Antichrist, <laughs> you're, you're not making up things. Uh, I mean, you're not improving that relationship once it gets to that point. Like, it's, it's well beyond 
repair. Once you start saying that the Pope can die because the Pope isn't the head of anything, once you start saying that uh, you only have to listen to the law of God's commandments, you know, as found in Scripture, and can ignore all the laws passed down by the church, right? That's that's Reformation talk. Right? And these these really are these are classic Reformation points. He sounds very similar to Martin Luther, who comes about a hundred years later. Right? He he's out there. He's writing about the corruption of the church, the need to return to Scripture. Uh, he's writing extensively against that practice of simony, uh, which, again, is really just an awful thing, and he sees it as such. And he wants a pure Christianity, one that actually lives according to the teachings of Jesus as found in Scripture. It puts Christ back as the head of the church, not the Pope and not human laws. Right? It's, we can see the Reformation coming, whether the powers that be like it or not, and the powers that be definitely don't like it. The church is outraged. The Pope is outraged uh, by Hus and what he's doing. But he's still protected. Uh, I mean, he still has powerful friends, and Wenceslas really does still like him. I mean, he's upset with him for his indulgence teachings, but I don't think he wants him uh, dead. Uh, but, unfortunately for Hus, a new character comes on the scene. Uh, Wenceslas' half-brother, a guy named Sigismund, or, or King Sigismund, because uh, it turns out that Wenceslas, although he was a big fan of Hus and helpful to Hus, he turned out to not be a great king. Right? He wasn't great at ruling. Uh, he's kind of a disaster, and uh, and over time he slowly loses his power as more and more of his territory is taken from him. Um, power that his younger brother eventually comes to take. Right? And so now at this point in history, uh, Wenceslas really doesn't even have the power to protect Hus anymore. Uh, as Sigismund is now in control. He's the, he's the king now. Um, and he decides he needs to clean up the mess that's happening uh, in the church. And so he has the Pope call for this grand council, the Council of Constance. Uh, and his goal is is kind of two things. One, he, there's still these three popes. There still is three popes kicking about. Right? <laughs> they still haven't figured out how to how to stop that. And so that's kind of one of the biggest goals. Let's Okay, let's get rid of the three popes. Uh, but also, we got to clean up the heresies happening, especially Wycliffe and Hus and their followers. And so Hus is summoned to this council in order to defend himself and explain his teachings. Now, obviously, this is a, a big risk. I mean, he's a heretic. Heretics typically don't last long at this point in history, at any point in history. And I mean, he's seen friends of his killed because they're labeled heretics. So he's not real certain about going to this council, but he's promised protection by Sigismund. Right? Sigismund promises him, you can come freely, tell us your ideas, where you won't be arrested or harmed at this council. And so, Hus decides to go. It's October of 1414. Uh, he sets off to go to this council of Constance, uh, defend his beliefs. But before he even gets a chance to do that, he gets arrested. Right? When he gets to town, he starts doing some preaching at a local church, at which point church officials have him arrested. Apparently, they don't care about the king's word. Um, and really, we're not sure exactly if this was completely in defiance of the king or not. Sigismund does seem to protest uh, this arrest of, of Hus, um, but not enough that he actually does anything to step in and, and stop it. Right? I mean, he is the king. He probably could have uh, stepped in and freed Hus, but he doesn't. Uh, but he does protest, and so it's kind of hard to say if he, how, you know, if this was just a public, if he's just kind of grandstanding and pretending like he cared or not, hard to say. 
but the church's stance is, look, uh, who's coming and preaching? And preaching invalidated the protection. Right? He, he stepped out of bounds, and so we stepped in. And then they said, besides, you know, really a heretic can't be protected in general. You shouldn't be able to offer protection to a heretic. Uh, which essentially means he's convicted before he even tried, if they're already referring to uh, him as a heretic. And so now Hus uh, sits imprisoned. Uh, it's a very poor experience for him. They treat him very, very badly. I mean, medieval prisons prisons are not exactly known for their hospitality in the first place. Uh, it's you know He sits there in dark, uh, dank conditions for months on time. He's isolated. Nothing's happening. He's just waiting for trial. Um, which eventually does come after several months. Um, there's actually three public trials, and all of them go exactly as you might expect. They bring him out, say, hey, take back everything you said. And he says no. Um, I mean, some of the stuff they're actually telling him to take back is stuff he never actually said. I mean, they, they, at one point they accuse him of claiming to be kind of on the same level as God himself, um, which was never part of what he was getting at. But it's just, it's... The classic, we see, again, we see this happen with Martin Luther. This is kind of the classic trial for people who are being uh, condemned as heretics. Fall in line, take back everything you said, agree with everything the church says and with everything the Pope says, and we'll let you go and you'll be all good. Uh, Hoos won't do it. No, he refuses to recant what he says or take back. He says, look, if you can show me where I'm wrong from Scripture, I'll take it back. But they can't do that. Um, from their perspective, they don't need to. The Pope and church laws is as good as scripture. Uh, and that's where Hus disagrees. And so he's officially declared a heretic. And he's uh, sentenced to death. Uh, a fate he's actually given many opportunities to avoid. Even after his trial, they give him opportunities to take it back and to avoid death. But, uh, but he refuses. Because he believes that, uh, that he's in the right. He believes, I mean, he, he, he has his eyes set on a, on a bigger goal. He's not trying to preserve his life. He's trying to, to reclaim the church and bring it back to what it should be, which for him is, is way more important than, than his very life. Uh, as he says himself, it's better to die well than to live wrongly. And he would rather die knowing that he's right and, and as an example to others, trying to spur them on than to take it all back and let the church continue being the well, place of corruption that it is. And so, on July 6, uh, 1415, Jan Hus is burned at the stake. A horrible, horrible way to die. He's made a very public example, and that's why you would burn someone at the stake. I mean, um, yeah, I can't even imagine the pain that has to go uh, with being burned alive. And so they set him up there, and they burn him in public and say, look, this is what happens if you're going to agree with this guy. Right? This is what happens to heretics. Um, it's reported that as the flames leapt up towards him, he could be heard not screaming, but singing, Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. Over and over and over again, this is what he was saying. Uh, a powerful, powerful witness. Uh, to someone who, who truly believed uh, really in the gospel and the power of scripture and Christ's teachings and was really trying to change things uh, so that the church as it was would live up to those standards. I mean, he wanted reform. He wanted the church to change. 
and to be better. Um, but he's killed. He's killed for those beliefs. He's killed as a heretic, something which, according to the Catholic Church, he still is. I mean, for Protestants who come later, uh, Hus is raised up as a martyr. Um, Martin Luther, who really wasn't familiar with Hus's teachings until well into his career as a reformer, until well into getting the church changed, uh, openly admit, you know, I was a Hus, I was a Hussite, and I, I didn't even know it. Um, and a lot of the reformers to follow were as well. He was one of these people who came and, um, you know, he he led the church in trying to change. Uh, he was a reformer in every sense of the word. Uh, he just didn't have kind of some of the luxuries that Martin Luther had, like the printing press and uh, and somebody with enough power like Prince Frederick to protect him. Uh, and so he, he's killed. But his ideas aren't. Right? That's the thing. You can kill a man. Ideas are hard to kill. Right? And that becomes the legacy of Hus. And that's why this is going to be a two-parter. Uh, Hus is gone, but the Hussites, as they are become known, uh, they're not. Right? His followers are not. His teachings are not. His writings are not gone. Uh, and he leaves behind a legacy that still, is, as we're going to see in the next episode, it will have a huge impact on, on Bohemia, on the Czech people, and really on, on the world at this time. Right? Things are just getting started. And, and Jan Hus is the one who started them. Uh, and so he's a, a character worthy of knowing, uh, and we're going to see just the impact he has on, on the world around him uh, in the next part. So look for that uh, coming out, oh, I don't know, sometime, hopefully soon. I'll try to get that one out uh, as quick as I can. But that's Jan Hus, uh, a great man, a great reformer, not a heretic, even though he was killed as one, uh, who, who set out to bring the church back uh, to what it should be. And, uh, and he didn't entirely fail at that, as we're going to see in the second part. So stick around for that. But have a, have a great day, and uh, well, have a great whatever is going on in your life. I hope things are, are going well for you now. Until next time. Bye.